Well, thanks so much for the opportunity to be here tonight. Uh, and if I invite you to name a philanthropist, who comes to mind? Take a moment and think about it. Carnegie? <laughs> right here. John. Sorry. Right. Uh, Carnegie? Bill Gates. Perhaps you thought of uh, Bill Gates. <laughs> or um, Mackenzie Scott, a new philanthropist. Uh, the Prince of Wales. Maybe you thought of historical figures. Gresham. Um, John Howard, who, whose statue is there in St. Paul's. William Wilberforce. Uh, Angela Burdett, who's our Gilded Age uh, philanthropist like Scotsman Andrew Carnegie or American John D. Rockefeller. Perhaps your mind turned to more recent events in, and the darker side of philanthropy. Disgraced philanthropists like the Sackler family who made their fortune from addictive opioids, Russian oligarchs seeking to curry favor in the West, or recent efforts to remove names of past philanthropists from public spaces upon coming to terms of how fortunes were amassed from uh, the means of colonialism or slavery. Or maybe you envisioned a different kind of philanthropist. Uh, how about uh, footballer Marcus Rashford do donating funds while um, advocating and raising uh, funds for uh, hunger relief in the midst of COVID? Uh, maybe it's young Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg or, or Pakistani uh, advocate for girls' education and Nobel Prize winner, winner Malala Yousafzai. Maybe you're thinking of someone a little bit closer to home. Maybe it's a neighbor, a family member, or a friend. What counts as philanthropy? And if I've asked you to what, who comes to mind when thinking of a philanthropist, now let me ask you to consider what comes to mind in describing philanthropy. Perhaps you're imagining a grant given to a local charity or a foundation or trust, a corporation's social responsibility budget, or an individual donor's major gift. Others would even include the change dropped into a Salvation Army red kettle or a Jewish child's Zadaka box. Still others might think about an online crowdfunding platform uh, for a local grassroots advocacy organization or the public-private partnership of a billionaire working with a government to mass-produce a COVID-19 vaccine. Dolly Parton did that in the States. Whether described as philanthropy or charity, giving or volunteering or even generosity and pro-social behavior, these collective practices have long played a key role in our communities, locally, nationally, and globally. But let's be honest, if we ever stop to consider philanthropy, most of us, in our imaginations, our shorthand is something like big money given to a good cause. Yet I think this popular conception alone does not do justice to the complexities of philanthropy. It allows us too easily to fall into the trap of either romanticizing or criticizing. Either philanthropy that has too often been left unexamined as an unquestioned good, where individuals freely give of their time and money, or an unwelcomed result of political and economic systems that empower a few individuals with undue wealth and influence to shape public policy and our collective lives together. So this limited conception also masks the bigger picture of philanthropy, that I take not to only include treasure, but gifts of time, talent, and testimony. We might consider the impact of volunteering, offering one's expertise or passions to others, as well as raising one's voice and advocating for others. What if money, while primary, may only be a 
facet through which we can view this multifaceted concept of philanthropy. And like a prism, perhaps it's through this combination of the many facets together that we can see something new, shedding new light, even offering us a new field of vision worth exploring. So in this lecture, we'll take a few uh, brief looks at the who, the what, and the how of philanthropy, but I'll take most of our time to focus together on the why. And while there's a large literature on uh, attending to the why of uh, why donors give, thinking about donor motivations, for instance, we're not focused so much on the individual, but more on the broader nature of philanthropy and the role it plays in our public life together. So with that in mind, how should we define philanthropy? Well, there are many definitions from which to choose, from the broadest original Greek love of humanity to the sector-specific monetary gifts to a registered charity or nonprofit organization. But I've always liked something more in between. As scholars Peyton and Moody have offered, philanthropy is more voluntary action for the public good. It's short. It's simple, and like most definitions, it probably is not comprehensive enough, but it offers us a good starting point to explore uh, what we are here to talk about together. And if this broad definition is a start, it still provides no simple answer to the question of does philanthropy do the public good? And while answering the question is not easy, it doesn't mean that people aren't trying. With the increasing professionalization of philanthropy and public policy and nonprofit organizations, scholars have attended, uh, tended most often to assess tax codes and funding mechanisms and evaluation metrics. In measuring the impact of philanthropy on the public good, the question has most often centered on effectiveness. Yet perhaps the question, the prior question might be effective at what? In order to address when philanthropy does the public good, we must first reflect on the moral nature of philanthropy and the multiple visions of the public good. So one common approach when defining philanthropy and debating its purpose has been categorizing the work within its own distinct sector. So in contrast to the public sector, government, the state, or the private sector, market, business, Many point to a third sector, philanthropy, charity, nonprofit organizations, civil society. So another prominent definition of philanthropy is private action for public benefit. This definition helps us to focus on the role of private giving in a charitable activity in contrast to the sectors of, first, government and business. So for instance, while the state and philanthropy may share the goal of working for public benefit, they're distinct in the fact that philanthropy is a private action done by an individual or a corporation as opposed to the public action of the state. And additionally, philanthropy is voluntary as opposed to the coercive power of the state to make you pay your taxes, for instance. And in contrast, the market, like philanthropy, is made up of private actors, but its ends are not necessarily for the public benefit. Rather, success may be measured by shareholder value or quarterly profits. So perhaps these three sectors, these sector distinctions, tell us something about the nature of philanthropy, private action for public benefit, but I think we will find that these sector lines have always been much more blurry. And that definitely is the case today, with the state relying on and contracting with the third sector for many social services, 
companies measuring social impact through doubled or triple bottom lines, and philanthropy not only making grants, but engaging in public-private partnerships or focused on impact investments. But focusing on philanthropy as a distinct sector is not only, is not only, is, is not only, is not the only way for us to make sense of the concept. We might also think of philanthropy more as a set of practices, a, a complex social institution, not a single organization or set of organizations, but a broader overarching meta-institution that as management scholar Mari McLean and colleagues would note, varies widely in form and substance, depending on variations in historical trajectory, legal systems, socioeconomic structures, policies, ideologies, and cultural values. So in the complexity and diversity of context that McLean and colleagues note, we might also consider philanthropy as a social institution, also more of a, a tradition as well. Not a single tradition, mind you, but multiple traditions that are contested, shaped, and sustained across historical, geographical, political, cultural, and religious traditions themselves. Easy categorization of a concept like philanthropy is impossible as the lines between public and private, local and global, individual and collective are oftentimes blurred and contested. A more capacious understanding requires not idealizing, but rather illustrating these many philanthropic traditions in their context. Consciously or often unconsciously, these traditions are layered one upon another to reshape our understandings of philanthropy and the nature of giving and receiving. At the same time, attending to these philanthropic traditions that we inhabit cannot be done without attention to how we make sense of our lives together. Yes, philanthropy attends to what we do, our actions, but it also must attend to the why, the ideas and values that shape our actions. This is philanthropy as moral imagination that we work out together in order to make sense of what doing the public good should or could mean. And so before we set out together to take stock of these multiple philanthropic traditions and trajectories across time, <clears throat> and then come back to take uh, sense of the current landscape, perhaps we should take one moment to reflect on the other concept that I've twinned with philanthropy uh, for this lecture tonight, the public good. And like philanthropy, it may, be, it may seem easier to define than it really is. Economists, economists have more of a straightforward definition of public goods. Technically, public goods are those that are non-excludable or non-rivalrous. Non-excludable, meaning that anyone can benefit from the good regardless of whether they've contributed to it. And non-rivalrous, meaning one person's use of it doesn't diminish another's. Think of national defense or public libraries or city parks. Um, yet the problem with public goods from an economics lens is that public goods are susceptible to the free rider problem. If I can access the public good without paying for it, why should I? Why buy a ticket when I could ride for free? To extend this argument, economists explain the third sector more generally as necessary as a response to market failures or failures in government to provide the optimum amount of public goods. And so therefore, there's a need for philanthropy or charitable organizations to step in and provide the necessary resources that market or government don't make available. But again, that draws us into what I seem to see, to see as this limited sector-based uh, approach. Like we've already noted, these lines of private and public, as well as for-profit, non-profit, have always been blurry. 
And the economic definition of the public good is just one among many. For ages, philosophers, ethicists, religious leaders, politicians, and pragmatic reformers have been debating what is and how best to achieve the public or common good. And frankly, if philanthropy is a tradition that shapes our moral imaginations, then this is more the question and debates that we might be interested in tonight. Yet too often the implication when we attend to the public good in this more expansive way is the assumption that there is some certain or ideal or absolute good that we could ascribe to and work toward. But in reality, that's not how it works. As sociologist Craig Calhoun argues, the fact is that the public good is not objectively or externally ascertainable. It's a social and cultural project of the public sphere. It's created in and through the process of, public, uh, of our public life together. It doesn't exist in advance of it. So the public good isn't something that's not found. It's rather forged through our lives together. So thinkers from Plato to Aquinas to Adam Smith to Alexis de Tocqueville have worked to make sense of self-interest and how that aligns with the common good. Plato claims that acting justly would produce happiness. Aquinas agreed, saying that one's own good cannot exist without the common good. Adam Smith famously saw that what was good for the individual was good for the polis through the work of an invisible hand. And Tocqueville saw the success of America's experiment in voluntary association through self-interest rightly understood. But as sociologist Calhoun again would go on to say, our debates about what is good for us are always debates about whom we want to be. The public or common good is not simply the aggregation of our own imagination, our own interest, nor is it an abstract ideal or fixed standard to meet. Rather, it's constantly contested and debated. And through attending to these debates, not the debates undertaken by philosophers in ivory towers, but rather in the working out, fighting over, forging together our concepts of the public good in the midst of the public sphere. Well, that's where we want to focus. So apologies to those of you looking for specific definitions in clearer categories, but I want to argue that the benefit of looking at the public good is in looking at the institutions and the individuals, instruments, identities, power, and practices shaped involved, involved in shaping it. And my argument, following Peyton and Moody, is that the traditions of philanthropy can be understood as the social history of our moral imagination, attending to these ideas and actions that have defined our efforts uh, to, make the, to, make, to make this kind of pull together um, a better place through engaging our work and lives together. Philanthropic traditions can serve as one lens through which to work out the multiple meanings of the public good in our lives together. And just one more note before we turn to these philanthropic traditions. First, first it might be worth noting uh, the work that philanthropy does, broadly defined. I've already posited that philanthropy is a living tradition uh, and a fluid set of practices, but for the sake of some boundaries, what is the, what is the work that philanthropy has been set up to do? I imagine that the first role that most of us would come up with is some form of, of service, meeting immediate and long-term needs through sharing resources. These social services have oftentimes been the backbone of the charitable sector and an argument for why it must exist alongside government and market. But a second role may be advocacy. Advocating for particular views of the public good has been an important part of philanthropy's uh, work. Think how it's functioned as reform efforts towards abolition or suffrage, uh, basic human rights. 
Of course, one person's advocacy could be another person's political lobbying. In the US, for instance, in the wake of the Supreme Court case, Citizens United, there are debates on the nature of 501c3s or 501c4 uh, types of nonprofit organizations and the role that they might have for financial campaigns and, and, cam and candidates. Third, uh, philanthropy serves a cultural role, expressing and preserving uh, cherished values, traditions, identities, and other aspects of culture. Think of National Trust, the Smithsonian, arts, symphony, cultural artifacts, higher education, like the public lectures of Gresham College. Here, philanthropy can look quite conservative in some ways, literally conserving traditions, but just as we noted with advocacy, the nature of how we tell the stories of past and present have always been up for debate, and even more so in the recent years. The cultural role that's, that philanthropy plays, again, demonstrates the, contest, con, the contestations about the nature of the public good in its past, present, and future. Fourth, philanthropy can play a civic role on building community and promoting civic engagement. The moral imagination of philanthropy is shaped in the crucible of civil society in the public sphere, but it is also a key constitutive part. So today, with a decline in participation with many of these core institutions, continuing to build spaces for dialogue and community and building social capital is another key question for philanthropy and, the, and, the, and bolstering democracy and, and civic engagement. Fifthly, perhaps philanthropy also plays a vanguard role, serving as a site for innovation, experimentation, and invention. If elected officials are beholden to voters and the market is beholden to shareholders, philanthropy has a different motivation. Perhaps it's best suited to look to the long term, investing in projects that may not make sense to others, but perhaps can envision new ways of meeting needs, addressing our life together, or fighting for a particular vision of the public good. The role that philanthropy plays in our society has always been more than simply making a gift. So as University of Kent scholar of philanthropy, Beth Breeze, has noted, there's no straightforward, objective answer to the question, what is philanthropy? Rather, there are multiple changing, competing, subjective opinions on its roles and purpose. And before you get tired of me saying that this evening, uh, because of our difficulty in making sense of philanthropy today, it's well worth our time to pay attention to its history and the traditions which underline both the consistent themes and developments as it's, you know, it's been embedded throughout our cultural, political, and social context. So if you permit me for the next few minutes, let's map a few of those traditions. Mostly focused on the West, uh, we could offer an entire uh, additional lecture on, on the East, for example, that have helped to shape our understandings of philanthropy and the public good. And it's worth noting here that these traditions, um, they may be more traditions than historical periods. So as one historian, Hugh Cunningham, has noted, it's not as if one tradition is eliminated with the beginning of another. And they often exist together, building upon another, reshaping one another, and leading to the multiple philanthropic traditions that we encounter today. So first, I alluded to when we initially defined philanthropy as the love of humanity, ancient Greece and the Romans to follow, establishing one particular tradition of philanthropy. The word philanthropy, we think, can be traced uh, back in its earliest usage to the fifth century BCE uh, to the Greek tragedy Prometheus Bound, where Greek god Prometheus gives the gift of fires, fire to humans and endures the wrath of the gods as a result. And so this gift of fire was 
the love of humanity. And so first seen as gifts given to humans by gods, philanthropy then came to be seen as the way rulers would care for their subjects. And then following from that, philanthropy, philanthropy became more the way that wealthy citizens supported the public good while establishing and maintaining their own reputations and the process. Giving was patronage to support buildings or armies or public works. And in many ways, it became more about the giver than the gift or the recipient. But early on, Greek philosopher Aristotle will begin to consider the ethics of philanthropy as a virtue. He attended to finding the middle way, as Aristotle was known to do, about debating how to give to the right person in the right amount at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way. And he acknowledged that this is not something anyone can do uh, easily to find this right path between what he would talk about as wastefulness and stinginess. So if Greek and Roman patronage was one early model defining philanthropy in the Western tradition, the Abrahamic faith traditions might be another. And we, while we can't unpack the rich and varied history of each of these traditions here tonight, we might know, note several common themes. First, Jews, Christians, and Muslims see God first as generous, and the duty and obligation of humanity is to respond to that generosity through giving uh, back to God and to one another as well. And so if Greco-Roman philanthropy was about society, for Jews, generosity was more about community and social solidarity. Community ensured first that all Israelites could demand from one another and were entitled uh, with basic levels of, of well-being. But generosity and hospitality would also extend to those outside of community as well. The stranger or alien, the widow or orphan. For, Jew, for Jews, zedakah is the religious word for giving, which literally means justice or righteousness, and has the sense of giving to the poor and those with various needs as a moral obligation and a larger effort to uh, repair the world, tikkun olam. In Islam, the, word, the root word is similar. Sadaqah is a term for voluntary giving in Islam, same root for justice. But there is also zakat, which is a religious duty, one of the five pillars of Islam, where all Muslims, um, beyond a basic level of wealth, would give 2.5% uh, of their accumulated wealth each year to a particular set of causes, uh, eight to be specific, most of which are focused on those in poverty or in need of basic resources. And again, these forms of giving have a sense of duty and obligation, not just for the wealthy, but for all in response to God's own generosity, as well as in order to work specifically for justice, solidarity, and a particular vision of the public good. Christianity would follow in a similar vein. In the early church, gifts would serve to care for those in community with need. Those with resources would help those without, and in time, Christians would garner the attention of the Romans in their midst because they were also keen to help, help those outside of their community as well. Uh, aging, uh, again, caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the stranger. And a tradition of charity or, or even almsgiving would grow up to define the Christian movement uh, in contrast to the Roman patronage model. And over time, as Christianity would expand to become the established religion of the Roman Empire and much of the West, it would help to shape a new understanding of the poor. The status of the poor was transformed, actually, as special in the eyes of God. While enduring hardships on earth, they were set apart to receive special favor in heaven. And in the developing tradition of philanthropy, giving to the poor not only benefited the recipients, but it was also beneficial to the donor as well, 
Giving alms to the poor, sick, or hungry was like giving to Christ himself. So these Abrahamic understandings of philanthropy, particularly the Christian conceptions of the poor, came to define late antiquity and the Middle Ages. In Christian Europe, parishes, uh, churches, and monasteries were often the institutions that sought to care for the poor, not the state. And with reason to hold up the poor as models of Christian life, there was little or no vision of the public good at that time that sought structurally to eliminate poverty. Yet there were voices that asked questions about traditions of giving and the public good. And there were also institutional innovations uh, in the Middle Ages that, that shaped philanthropy as well. So just one example of a figure at that time was, was Rabbi Maimonides, a 12th uh, century Jewish philosopher in Spain, and many would say the brightest mind of his day. And he developed what still we refer to as Maimonides' ladder in eight levels or degrees of giving, or zedaka, from donating with reluctance and regret, begrudgingly, to donating after one is asked, donating before one is asked, giving through relationships, someone you know in need, giving anonymously, or moving from a gift to working with someone to become self-sustainable and self-sufficient. Again, not sort of giving a man a fish by teaching him to fish as that example. Maimonides was not offering a blueprint per se, or more like an ethical on-ramp to reflect upon the nature of giving and doing the public good. And we still use uh, Maimonides' ladder uh, today. Another innovation that took off at the time in the Muslim world, particularly in the Ottoman Empire, was the waf. And while Muslims trace the origin of the waf back to Muhammad himself, it was an innovation in philanthropy for public good. And it took off in importance, particularly uh, in subsequent centuries. In many ways, it was the predecessor to the endowment. Individuals or families would set up funds that would provide in perpetuity resources for certain needs. And most often these were for some public purpose, like supporting a mosque, our school, bridges, our drinking fountains. There are thousands of wafts in modern-day Turkey that are set up to, to care for these public uh, statuary and, and fountains. At the same time these traditions developed, society itself was undergoing change. The Reformation was blossoming, and understanding the poor as close to Christ was less frequently voiced. New models of charity that not only ran through the church, but also included the state, helped to reshape poor relief. And welfare reform guided by laymen outside the church's purview, even if religious sensibilities continued to define it, began to take off. And so society sought solutions for poverty alongside their charitable giving, commitments to earnest work, economic advancement, civilizing efforts, and social control started to take center stage. So again, as medieval models of charity evolved, religion remained but many would begin to see secular or non-religious institutions defining the work of benevolence, charity, mutual support, and philanthropy. In fact, these were all included in the broad sets of ideas that were taking shape at the time, and there were a variety of efforts emerging out of the Enlightenment to define the public good. One new feature were associations uh, for mutual benefit. With limited public goods available to most of the population, citizens sought out ways to build civil society in their own. Schools and hospitals developed mutual support models, kind of based on the for-profit joint stock company uh, model. You paid a small amount, you pooled resources with others, and then you could access health care when you needed it. Or you could pay for a teacher to enable your kids to go to school. 
The work of mutual aid among everyday citizens came alongside additional effort by community leaders or the elite to embrace benevolence as the beginnings of reform, seeking to restructure these models of charity. So the goal was a general humanitarian ethic to reshape society, and that sometimes came with strong efforts to supervise those that received charity and required a particular form of moral action uh, in order to continue to receive support, thinking about who was the deserving or the undeserving poor, for example. And so it's worth noting that after late antiquity, and really, really after the Greco-Romans, philanthropy was not a term people used. In effect, our efforts to trace this history focusing on philanthropy is a bit anachronistic. I mean, of course, we're pointing to the same types of action and efforts towards promoting the public good, even if the word wasn't used. But that actually began to change in, with the Enlightenment as the word reemerged in, in English and in French. But strikingly, it was used less for giving money and rather more as a focus on reform. And so the first person in England to be labeled as a philanthropist was John Howard in the 1780s, who toured prisons through Britain and across Europe seeking reform. And then someone like William Wilberforce campaigning to end slavery in the 1830s would be seen as a reformer and a philanthropist as well. And so Howard and Wilberforce were examples of how charity, philanthropy, and reform had begun to move outside the realm of the church, but yet often remained tied to a particular religious vision. And that vision was increasingly evangelical Christianity. And that evangelistic fervor sought converts, but it also sought to reform society. This, the fervor was defined across a transatlantic network, so the U.S. and Britain would begin to exchange ideas, practices, and, and people. They would bolster one another to greater, greater action and oftentimes perhaps compete, compete for market share uh, and mission. The U.S., uh, in turn, was often defined by the sheer number of voluntary organizations. This was noted most famously by French sociologist and political theorist Alexis de Tocqueville, whose journeys through America and his writings in the, 17, in the 1830s made the argument that the voluntary association in a democracy was the training ground for political and civic engagement. It was the social capital that developed from these associations that Tocqueville found most interesting. And he makes the point, as we noted earlier, that one of the roles of philanthropy is not only giving money or resources, but it's also to foster civic engagement. Now, many of these American associations were religious and worked for reform on issues like education and health, as well as providing social services, but they also led the way in democratizing notions of philanthropy as the work of the masses and not just, the, um, not just elites. So through these transatlantic networks, philanthropy also began to take a global perspective. And in the thick of the colonial age, Christian missions from many lands, but particularly the US and UK, sought to take Christianity, commerce, and civilization with them. Funds raised for its work were astronomical, and the questions that began to be raised were whether charity overseas was taking away from meeting local needs at home. This was the critique of a critic like Charles Dickens, and it was oftentimes referred to as telescopic philanthropy, looking abroad but missing those needs right at our feet. The critique clearly remains today. If we look to international relief and development, for instance, such a question continues to define humanitarianism. So by the 1800s, philanthropy came to be seen as a badge of honor, part of the national identity of Britain in the Victorian age. A similar notion may have come to define American uh, philanthropy and civil society as well uh, after the Civil War in the late 19th century. The focus at this time in working for the public good was really brought on by fighting the ills, the social ills of industrialization, urbanization, and immigration. 
The overflowed city led to all of the need for philanthropy. And the reputation of Victorian philanthropy was that it had the means and the know-how to address these issues. There were numerous, numerous benefactors and efforts to meet the challenges of the day, but many critics also began to emerge to oppose what looked like new efforts of social control and making judgments about who was deserving or undeserving. At the same time, these traditional forms of philanthropy began to see that the needs were greater than the resources that they had at their disposal. And they began to see that these issues were more structural in nature, not simply charity that they thought of before. And so society could not change without changes to political economies, such as a need to consider wages and working conditions. Some benefactors sought to marry this approach to philanthropy and business. English Quakers and chocolatiers like George Cadbury or Joseph Roundtree sought to create model villages for their employees with housing, healthcare, education, and pensions. And while sometimes accused as paternalistic to a certain degree, Cadbury and Roundtree knew their religious convictions led them to better working and living conditions for their employees. They also knew it was good business. Again, examples of what it means to be a socially responsible business is a question that we're asking and layers around philanthropy today. But by the end of the Great War in 1918, the impulses of Victorian philanthropy had been overtaken by calls for what would become in Britain the welfare state. And as already noted, the boundaries around these three sectors, philanthropy, business, government, were often blurred. But in the early 20th century, the state became the voice to take center stage in an effort to care for citizens from cradle to grave. Philanthropy, of course, continued, but it served more to fill the gaps than to lead the way in shaping the public good. The story wasn't exactly the same uh, in the US. At the same time, Gilded Age titans like Carnegie and Rockefeller were making huge fortunes, uh, often on the backs of their employees and their ruthless, ruthless business practices, but then they became philanthropists. Carnegie had a famous um, essay, Gospel of Wealth, which helped to define what kind of philanthropist he sought to be, responsibly and dutifully working to administer the return of his wealth that he had garnered through his lifetime. A new age of major philanthropy came to the United States, and it came to define a new entity, the, the charitable foundation. And in many ways, it was an uh, economic vehicle to prevent wealth uh, from finding its way into the U.S. Treasury, but the sheer magnitude of the leading foundations, Carnegie, Rockefeller, and Ford, most notably, would have a significant role in shaping the public good through their approaches to giving and the topics that they would prioritize. People would follow suit, whether those were government diplomats or academic researchers or other philanthropists as well. And while President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal or Lyndon Johnson's Great Society were both attempts at expanding the size and reach of the federal government, the US never really followed Britain's lead in transitioning to a welfare state. And as a result, America also remained more dependent on the charitable sector, nonprofit organizations, and philanthropic foundations as they professionalized into a social sector with social work, uh, public health, and official grant officers or grant uh, program officers in foundations developing their own sense of expertise. So for the first time, perhaps, in the early to mid-20th century, philanthropy and charity could begin to be defined as its own sector. Of course, charitable sector and civil society wasn't always dependent on elite philanthropy, its biggest donors. There are also many trends towards local giving or, or mass philanthropy, with Americans working to fight for um, tuberculosis or raising funds in the midst of the world wars, supporting their local United Ways or Jewish federations, 
or funding their local congregations or their, their PTAs. And so this oftentimes in America were these two trends. Uh, the story in the 20th century is the trajectory of major and mass philanthropy operating at the same time. But in the 21st century, we continue to see this mix of major and mass philanthropy in new ways. For most of us looking to make sense of philanthropy in recent decades, the story has been the rapid rise of, of new philanthropists. Taking a cue from Carnegie's Gospel of Wealth, the likes of Bill Gates, Melinda French Gates, and Warren Buffett have established the Giving Pledge, encouraging the mega-rich to give away the greatest portion of their wealth in their lifetimes. And at present, there's about 230 signatories from 28 countries who've signed this giving pledge. And their theme is giving while living. But another uh, theme has been the turn towards strategic philanthropy. Thinking of the role that philanthropy plays, the focus has lately been on impact, evidence, and measurable change. For instance, the Gates Foundation may seek specifically to eradicate a particular disease and this has oftentimes been defined by um, ethicist Peter Singer or the effective altruist movement. And as it's caught on, philanthropists are seeking uh, the most bang for their book, buck, to put it uh, succinctly. At the same time, other donors, particularly those who perhaps made their fortunes in finance or technology, are seeking to blur the line between traditional philanthropy and business, looking towards impact investing or, or venture philanthropy. For instance, Priscilla Chan and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, when they signed the Giving Pledge, they established the Chan-Zuckerberg Initiative, not as a foundation, but as an LLC, an instrument that allows for a return in some form on their philanthropic capital. So when we're defining philanthropy in the public good, these new forms are pushing back at us to ask, what is the nature of a gift? Okay, we finished our journey through the multi-layered philanthropic traditions of the past, and that brings us up to the present. So what do we make of the current landscape of giving? It's definitely worth noting, even as our attention more and more focuses on the largest donors and foundations, that the vast majority of giving still comes from average individuals. So Giving USA, which is researched and written by my colleagues at the Indiana University School of Philanthropy, tracks annual giving in the United States. And giving may come from institutions like foundations or corporations, but 69% comes from individuals, the vast majority. And while some of these individuals are wealthy donors that make major gifts, the bulk of these funds, again, are really from average donors. So in 2020, individuals gave over $324 billion in the U.S. $324 billion U.S. dollars given by individuals. The Gates Foundation has given away only $60 billion across its 20-year history. Across 20 years, the Gates Foundation has given away $60 billion. In the last year, American individuals gave $324 billion. So where do these gifts go? Well, to a variety of sectors. In the United States, religion still makes up the largest percentage. It's mostly religious congregations um, with education and human services coming behind. In the UK, the three major uh, areas uh, of receiving gifts are uh, youth and children, health, and animal welfare. But what do these trends mean? Well, one thing that we begin to really see is that there is a bit of a mixed message. Uh, first, charitable giving continues to grow, and that's good news. So over time, for as long as we've been tracking it, in total dollars, giving has continued to rise uh, every year. Uh, with the exception of just a few blips uh, with, with major 
economic recession. So oftentimes it's really giving us following uh, the trends in the, the stock market, really, in GDP. So if giving continues to grow over time, that's the good news. The bad news is that there seems to be a downward trend in the number of those giving and volunteering. So in the States, while overall dollar amounts of charitable giving continue to grow, the percentages of households giving at all continues to shrink. So the headline last year was, for the first time, less than, Amer less than half of American households were giving something or anything to a charitable cause. 66% in 2000, down to 49% in the last few years. That's a decline of 17% in less than two decades. So again, overall giving grew, but only as fewer donors were giving more. The same trend is basically true in the UK, with participation in households of giving falling from 32% in 2000 down to 26% in the last few years. <clears throat> and so on top of that, in the UK, among top earners, the average donations to charity have actually declined. So the same trend is following in the US and the UK, uh, that civil society is increasingly dependent on a smaller number of donors. And many may see that as a problem, not only as a concern of limited or fewer resources, but really as a diminishing civil society. With our ongoing fears of rising polarization and isolation, could increases in giving, volunteering, and advocacy be really a way for a sense of building social connectedness, citizen engagement, and a healthy democracy? So this is a larger example of how issues of philanthropy are tied to ongoing conversations about the nature of the public good and our lives together. And so in some ways, this is uh, a moment that we can define by concern, um, the current giving landscape. Money is up, you know, giving continues to grow, uh, participation continues to shrink. But um, if we define concern, there are also there are questions that are defining the space of philanthropy and public good right now when we turn to uh, a critical reflection. And this criticism most often seems to address issues of power, purpose, or practice. <clears throat> so first, power. This is nothing new for philanthropy. It's been the case throughout history with the first Gilded Age philanthropists like Carnegie and Rockefeller. There were ethical criticisms of how fortunes were made, as well as the widening gap between rich and poor. Again, it's worth noting that this may be a concern uh, in present day times. This has been true throughout history. Um, as wealth inequality has skyrocketed increasingly again in recent years, and as a new generation of major philanthropists have emerged to give in a variety of new ways, criticism has followed to ask if philanthropists have too much power and privilege in shaping public policy, our institutions are our civil society outside of the democratic process. And if power may always creep to the top in these critical reflections, the second criticism may be one of purpose. Can we or should we define the purposes of philanthropy? <clears throat> Do museums, galleries, or universities need more funds when there are people in need of help, um, meals, shelter, basic rights and justice? This is the question of what does the public good, and it's open for an interesting uh, uh, debate. Uh, or is it this question of local, national, or global issues? How do we best seek the welfare of those in our midst and beyond? Then there are critical reflections on how philanthropy is practiced. Our recent concept of the uh, context of the pandemic is a great example. If there was and is such a need for large-scale immediate support, what is the role of the perpetual foundation? How do grantmakers seek to work 
with local nonprofits and grassroots agencies? How do donors work um, with charities, government, and business to do this work well together? And so finally, if this moment has been marked by concern and a good deal of criticism or critical reflection, it's also marked by creativity. And thinking critically about practice, we can also return to the age-old question of <clears throat> what counts as philanthropy. Is there really a decline in the number of individuals and households giving? Or are we participating in philanthropy in new and different ways? Many of these forms of giving may be informal, or at least not formally counted. If they're not making a donation to a registered 501c3 nonprofit in the state or a charitable organization, uh, it's not getting counted as charitable giving or philanthropy. For instance, what about the tradition of mutual aid? We've, appointed, we've pointed to these earlier traditions, um, but what if we see a significant uptick in these practices in recent years, whether it's simply helping one another in community, uh, or crowdfunding via Kickstarter or GoFundMe to relieve medical debt, support a friend in need, help someone with a business, or simply make an album. Little to none of this registers as philanthropy or formal giving. What about giving circles where individuals in the same location or with a shared identity come together to pool resources and then together, out of their own agency, decide together where to invest their giving? Giving funds of local black women or LGBTQ youth or indigenous Americans <clears throat> are making their voices heard and making their own gifts and grants to those in need to do what they most care about. Or what about new digital platforms or brandings or movements to bolster global giving? If we have Black Friday and Cyber Monday in the United States, the Tuesday after Thanksgiving is now known as Giving Tuesday. It's touted as a global generosity movement unleashing the power of people and organizations to transform their communities and their world. It's a viral campaign. It's not owned by any particular organization, but it's offered to all nonprofits to encourage everyday givers to make commitments to causes that they care about. And the movement helped to raise over $2 billion in the U.S. just in 2021. <clears throat> So finally, the spirit of creativity has also shaped new forms of philanthropy, often blurring these traditional divides between sectors, as well as through things like impact investment, consumer decisions based on the values of the businesses that they support, or efforts towards giving to new grassroots movements or networks that are not registered as official charities or nonprofits. Giving financially or lending one's voice through advocacy and action make the point we are continuing to critically open up our ideas on how we can reimagine philanthropy in order to set a bigger table for this broader conversation. This bigger table often brings together people across political, religious, or cultural divides, enables the forming of new partnerships in seeking human flourishing and the public good. And that seems to be formational. Formational, focusing individuals and communities not only to move money but also to meet needs and foster greater generosity and caring for one another. So what is the purpose of philanthropy? Why are we motivated to give? How does philanthropy do the public good? In my mind, those are the right questions for us to, for us to engage. In making sense of the philanthropic traditions from which we operate, we are set up to dialogue and debate with one another how philanthropy as a part of our moral lives together works to shape how we envision the public good. Thank you.
do you think there's an economic reason behind the apparent decline in household giving? Yeah, the question, really thinking about the economic decline, uh, it's definitely true in the, in the states uh, that it was shifts in, in, in uh, how we itemize deductions, particularly. Uh, what that's done in the states is that it's, it's really raised the, the level that most families would take for, uh, for the, just the, the standard deduction. And so it's decreased the incentive to itemize one's tax deduction, which in the states um, you can, any gift to a registered charitable uh, entity could be reclaimed in some ways, very similar to um, the concept of gift aid in a different way. So I do think what the, the, some of those economic policies allow for a move towards giving to the top um, because most major donors can uh, financially or financially incentivized to claim uh, to give uh, for tax purposes and it, it may be uh, raising it may be one factor in raising that giving to the to the major donors uh, and it's less incentivizes giving across the board so there are a lot of public policy or lobbying efforts to make that that deduction uh, to charitable giving uh, universal uh, sort of whenever one would give and there were versions of that during the pandemic and other periods of time in order to see if that would uh, democratize giving in that way. Um, you spoke to motivation a little bit at the, at the end of, of your lecture. Um, I mean, some philanthropists like Dickens consciously appealed to the self-interest of potential donors in order to get an effect. Um, but this would seem to put him a bit lower down on the eight-step ladder. Um, does motivation matter if you get results like Dickens did? I think so. So thinking about motivations, I think this is why we need to, to open up a conversation beyond simply um, looking at evaluations and metrics and where we can make the biggest uh, sort of return on our philanthropic investment. Because I think what, what we know is that people give for a variety of different reasons, and the main reason that people give, A, is because someone asks. Uh, so all we have to think about sort of what we're making the need um, evident. But really, it's giving because of that sense of passion and values. And so there has to be that connection. So while sort of uh, finding the strategic philanthropy uh, as, a, as a trend in our giving world, uh, I think really we must really attend to where those relationships are established, where there are passions and values. And that's why things like education or the arts and culture, none of that should ever go away. But we need to cultivate um, donors or individuals to think about how they want to make a difference. And so finding where those passions and values might be. And I would say relationally, uh, is a great place to start. So there are going to be, I would think, multiple avenues in that frame. Um, around the world, is there a strong negative correlation between the size of a welfare state in a country and the level of philanthropy in that country, i.e. The, the, the bigger the welfare state, perhaps the less the levels of philanthropy are? Yes, this is a, so thinking about sort of the, the nature of the welfare state, for instance, and how we oftentimes think of uh, you know, the U.S., the United States has always been by far the most philanthropic or charitable. Um, but that is partly because of the way that we've, uh, speaking as an American, have uh, built a very limited government that requires a lot of, of, of giving and charitable giving in order to provide those social services. And so if the U.K. might be a middle ground, U.S. on one side, Scandinavia on the other. So I think, yes, we have to, uh, I think philanthropy would be too narrow of a, of a language to sort of, to frame how we care for one another. And so one of the, really the, 
the reasons for opening up this conversation of philanthropy and the public good is thinking broadly about sort of um, where that giving is done or someone who might be uh, giving uh, 40 to 50% towards uh, taxation might really think that that is how they are caring for um, making the public good happen in their society. So there are, there are trends in thinking about, uh, it's not completely a, a direct correlation between the size of the welfare state and the percentage of givers because in any country um, there are oftentimes those major givers that skew. Uh, but yes, it's something to really attend to as thinking of philanthropy as one piece of that broader question about how we provide for the public good. Thank you for that uh, tour de force, uh, the history of uh, philanthropy. I wonder if we could come back to the question of declining numbers, because that's obviously, as a fundraiser and an academic, I'm particularly uh, concerned about that if it's a long-term trend. I've just finished my PhD, and part of its original uh, contribution is that people, philanthropists, acquire the giving habit early in life. Mm. It's well known in, in, in faith, but not in philanthropy. Uh, 90% uh, cited parents, school, or other community organizations. And the thought there, if this is a long-term trend, it's younger people, we've got a real problem. Yeah, that, that's a great point. And just to comment briefly, I, I think that's right. And I would really encourage us to think about this next generation. So we're talking about a decline in numbers, but we also see, we are seeing that sort of in some ways informal philanthropy or charitable giving a decline by, by generational cohort as well. So one question is, uh, how is this younger um, individuals are less philanthropic? Or are they engaging in these questions in different ways? So opening up our imagination for what giving and caring for one another looks like but also really focusing, I would say, on that formational aspect of how are we passing down these giving traditions um, to the next generation uh, and helping to form them because, yeah, oftentimes when I ask donors why they give, they'll tell a story about their grandparents or their parents and how they were formed uh, quite intentionally early on in their lives. I, uh, I just like to point out the danger of it. Um, we're experiencing this now with the refugee crisis and the... Uh, the onus has been put upon the public. I'm an ex-BBC producer. I don't think we want a PBS system where all these people have to endlessly give a tiny bit of money and we hear a list of contributors as long as your arm and that it takes the onus off the public good and it gives us a, a false sense of security and well-being. And Similarly, when we, um, we have the Wellcome Foundation, that is funding science projects or based here, but right across America, because it's actually quite difficult in America for certain um, funding things. So I think that there's a danger of making this some sort of thing that we must aspire to, because God, this government would love us to do that. Yes, I, I love the fact that we can open up these conversations and critically reflect upon it, but also think of the necessity of, of all these forms of, of giving and engagement together. I think it's a great point. Hi there. To bring things up to date, I just wondered if you'd make a few comments on the new government scheme to offer individuals £350 a month to take in Ukrainian refugees into their homes uh, I have a difficulty when they, they are trying to bribe you to do charitable work. Two is philanthropy. 
actually meeting people, you know, individuals and talking to them rather than giving them cash, I would very find it very difficult to take an individual into my home, you know. Um, yeah, that's it. Yeah, and, and this, I, I had not heard of this particular scheme, but I, I do think it raises the question of how, uh, how, these, how sectors work together or how we're motivated to give or engage, but also how we think about the work of the public good. Um, is, there an, is there a need to sort of bolster civil society by incentivizing people to, 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 to take someone into their home? Um, that's an interesting question. Is there, is there not enough uh, in the Treasury uh, to do this through um, government or other forms of social services? I think we all can look back across history and cultures to where uh, these are not questions that come up. You know, sort of giving to local family, extended family, the, the, the tradition of remittances sort of is oftentimes un, unnoted philanthropy, tradition, you know, giving back to home country for, for um, not just family, but extended family to villages. And so thinking about the variety of traditions of giving and caring that are not simply sort of rooted in maybe the ones that, that we can sort of um, note in these clear sector divides. Hello, uh, good evening. Uh, I come from South America, which statistically is the most unequal uh, continent in the world. And you're beginning to see that there is a lot of philanthropy, but you know, lots of these states such as uh, Venezuela before its economy collapsed, Bolivia and to an extent Brazil do have quite large welfare states. So to what extent can in underdeveloped nations Welfare states replace philanthropy, or can philanthropy actually overpower welfare states? Yeah, it's a great question. Thinking about sort of what is the role of philanthropy in developing nations, or also in in in, wealth, in a variety of different welfare states. I think there is a trend towards philanthropy in the global economy that oftentimes mirrors Western forms of philanthropy. We're seeing it in China as well. So, uh, philanthropists can. Uh, in some sense, curry favor or, or, or be able to operate in a particular uh, sort of setting of, of shared philanthropist. So I do think it would be a partnership. You know, I, I, I do worry that sometimes philanthropists can, um, can have too much power in, in sort of um, opening up sort of dialogue in democratic society. Uh, but I think it's an, sort of an important part. And thinking how these sectors work together is something that I think I would encourage us to, to look to and, and watch for. Thanks for a great question. Okay, um, I'm afraid I have to close it there, but I wanted to thank um, our audience for joining us this evening, um, both in person and online. And I'd like to ask you to thank uh, the professor one more time. <laughs>